don't know me, but I think probably most do, but uh, it's just a wonderful thing to be able to read God's word together. It's, our reading is from John chapter 9, and you can listen. I think it'll be up on the screen, and if you want to use the Pew Bibles, it's on page 1074 to get there quickly. Jesus heals a man born blind. And there's some really interesting conversation that takes place and a bit of pushing and shoving. So uh, we're really looking forward to uh, Jeff uh, bringing some explanation and some discussion about that as we go through. Jesus heals a man born blind. As he went along, he saw a man born blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him. Wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbours and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes open, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. Where is this man? They asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been made blind, who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was the Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that he can now see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now Or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. 
He replied, Whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, You were this fellow's disciples. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? the man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. And Jeff, we look forward to you speaking to us from this scripture tonight. Uh, quite a challenge, I understand. I'll just pray for Jeff and, um, as he expands this word. Father, we just thank you for the opportunity to read your word to have you speak to us through it. And Lord, we pray that you would give Jeff the right words and help him to really just bring out the truth of your love for us out of this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. I might, might just while we're, I'm getting ready, um, could I grab a stand to hold this? I'm a little clumsy when it comes to manipulating three things at once. Um, and I uh, just want to say, uh, at my... Uh, Thanks to uh, Tim and Piper for that invitation to their wedding and reception and uh, from all of us, uh, we'll, we'll be there. And Kay and I have seven children and Nan and, and uh, we'll give you her dietary requirements at the end of the evening. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, very kind of you. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, just to uh, read a little, um, <clears throat> a little bit extra scripture from Daniel and uh, you, you probably know Daniel chapter 7 he has a vision at night when Belshazzar was king of Babylon and visions passed through his mind while he's lying in bed now here's the vision we jump to verse 13 <clears throat> in my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. And he was given authority, glory, sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one 
that will never be destroyed. <clears throat> Years ago, in a, a very popular leadership book, I, uh, I read this little story. Some of you probably read it. It was a popular book by Stephen Covey. And uh, he speaks about <coughs> a, a certain concept in, in learning. And he speaks about a, a story that was he read in a naval magazine about the American Navy and a couple of battleships off the American coast doing night manoeuvres and getting used to working together and judging where they were using their apparatus rather than visual sight. And uh, <coughs> in the middle of the night, uh, the... Uh, the watch noticed that there was a vessel approaching to the starboard and the captain suggested to the, uh, the radio operator that he better send a signal to this, this uh, looming ship because they're obviously heading on a collision course and he said, just tell them to bear 20 degrees starboard away from us. And the signal was sent and the reply came immediately, you bear 20 degrees to the starboard. And uh, the captain said, uh, I'll have you know, this is the captain speaking here, now bear 20 degrees to the starboard, that's a command. And immediately the response came back, this is Abel Seaman Jones, you bear 20 degrees to the starboard. The captain got on the blower himself and he says, do you realise we are a battleship? Now... Out of our way, bear 20 degrees to the starboard. The immediate message came back immediately, I'm a lighthouse. And immediately the captain had what they call a paradigm shift. He suddenly saw things in a new way that he'd never seen them before. And in fact, I'd say that's very much like a real conversion, a theological shift that... Uh, you will not be able to see things the same way again. We are all theologians. We all think things about God. We all think things about the universe and how it's put together. We have assumptions. Sometimes we're not even conscious of them. The question is not are we theologians, but whether we're adequate theologians and whether our theology is going to stand up in crunch time, whether our theology will support us or strangle us and here is a story which uh, carries a lot of theological freight. And it happens in that time where Jesus has now moved back to Jerusalem in one of those festivals. It's a festival of lights. And we've left out chapter 7 and 8, which is all about light, the metaphor of light, and how Jesus himself is the light in the midst of this festival, which is really about him. And they're still there. They're still around Jerusalem the capital city, the holy city, the place where the temple of God is, where God dwells. And, uh, <clears throat> and, and it's a time of intense feeling. And then this particular day, as they're walking through the capital, Jesus and the boys, and they pass a guy that everyone has seen many a time. He's a beggar. He's a blind beggar. Everyone can see he's blind. And everyone seems to know his story, that this guy has been blind since birth. He has never seen. Okay, he's never damaged his vision. It wasn't that he had defective vision. It wasn't that he had cataracts. He never had the apparatus to see, full stop, ever since he was born. 
And that raises an interesting theological question in the minds of the disciples. They ask Jesus because they can't resolve this one. Their tracks are just not meeting. And they say to Jesus, well, who sinned? Interesting question. They assume that this condition is a bad thing and bad things happen to bad people. So who's the bad person here? Who sinned, this person or the parents? And you see, it's a bit hard to understand. Like, on the one hand, if he was born blind at birth, he hasn't had a track to get a record to then be punished. And yet, if it was his parents who'd sinned, well, what sort of God is that who punishes a little baby for the parents' sin? Huh? It's a conundrum. But Jesus says, actually, there's a third possibility here. This one could have been made by this, like this by God for God's own purposes, purposes that are far beyond you. Now, the problem is, is that these disciples have a typical theology, which some Christians share, that they live in a moralistic universe. That is, it's quid pro quo. You do bad, you get bad. You do good, God rewards you. A lot of people think of Jesus or God as a big Santa Claus who will reward you in due time if you're naughty or nice. And he knows who you are and he knows what you've done. I'm not going to start singing, don't worry. It's about as far as it goes. But uh, Jesus and God, the universe, is one big Santa Claus to some. It was to the unit, these, these disciples. And that's why they had this conundrum. They thought everything was moral, was a punishment or a reward. There was no mystery. There was no freedom even for God. And in the middle of that, Jesus says, I'm going to show you something and I'm going to demonstrate the glory of God through this. And he gets down next to this guy And he does something, typically Jesus, typically gross. That is, he spits and he... And he gives it to the soil. And then he gets down and he makes stuff out of this. Now that's just not kosher. You don't leave your bodily fluids in public if you're a decent Jew. And what's more, you don't go and take them and then plug them on someone's eyeballs. (laughs) But he does. But he's doing a sign. What's he doing here? I mean, someone doing something creative in the dirt, what does that ring? Does that ring a bell? And then he sends this guy, and he says, go and wash him off and see what happens. And he sends him to a pool uh, called Siloam. Now, I haven't quite worked it out, but I think it's pretty significant that John tells us what that word Siloam means. It's a pool called Siloam. It's inside the city walls. It was built about seven centuries earlier by King Hezekiah at the most cru- one of the most crucial points in Israel's history in the days of Isaiah. 
Hezekiah knew the city, Israel had already been crushed by the Assyrians. And he goes and he, he deviates water from a spring, a fresh spring outside the city walls, and he gets people to start digging under the spring and bringing water back into the city. They started two ends, hammering away at the rock that is Zion. And they brought the water together and it ended up in this pool inside between two city walls. Called, it's there today, you can go and see it. Pool of Shiloh or Siloam. And uh, there it is. And so Jesus says, he sends a man on a mission to a pool called Sent. Now I wonder what that's about. This guy has a mission. And he goes... And I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall, any wall. This man, suddenly, he has depended his whole life on sonics. And he's worked out distance and he's worked out where to walk. And he, he's depended on smell and his other senses, but particularly his ears. But all of a sudden, he sees. And he doesn't know what sight is because he's never had it. <laughs> And it would have been incredibly tough intellectually to suddenly work out depth dimension and colour. And, and then he starts to notice sounds that are typical that he's heard before, a cart going past and horses' hooves. So that's what a horse smells like and looks like. He's never seen one. Ah, and there's one of his relatives, someone who says, hey, what are you doing? And the whole crowd starts to buzz because they've seen this guy begging with his bowl, looking around and listening for donkey's years. And now this guy walks, no bowl, eyesight. And they say, well, that can't happen. They, they don't trust their own senses. This can't be the same guy. And, uh, and he says, I am... <laughs> You got him. I'm the man. And this is fellow. He is full of new joy and new sight. He heads off back. We're not sure where he goes. But then the crowd says, well, we need to investigate this. And so they've asked him the question, well, how how did Jesus do it? What's the trick? You see, there's three investigations that happen in this this chapter. That's why it's a long chapter. Do you know there's no other court case in Scripture that is longer than this? Even the trial of Jesus himself gets less airplay than this trial. This fellow is significant. And the first investigation is in the court of public opinion. And they say, how did he do it? In verses 8 to 12, he simply tells the story. He recounts it very... It's a brief account, but the man, Jesus, he spat on clay, he put it on my eyes, he told me to wash, I washed, I see. Boom. He doesn't know how in any technical sense. It didn't seem any space to be any trick. He just sees. I don't know how really, but I know what, is what he says. And that's how you can trust him. He doesn't indulge in theorising at this point. Well, the crowd's not sure what to do, so in verses 13 to 17, they decided to take, take him to the experts, to the people who've read the hard books, the Pharisees. Because these people know cause and effect. They've thought about every possible 
conundrum that you can come across in life and they've, they've got the verdict of God on that. Surely these people will know. They'll be able to tell the difference between um, fact and theory. So this is a, the second investigation, which is just fact-finding. And in verse 14, John just slips in here. Oh, by the way, I forgot to tell you. He says, this miracle, guess what? It was done on the Sabbath. A man played in the mud on Sabbath. And we know there's a law against work like that. You don't make mortar on the Sabbath. And this is the problem that the Pharisees have. This has just happened on their watch on the Sabbath and they start to argue amongst themselves. You would have thought Jesus was in the room. Effectively, he is in the form of his handiwork in the eyeballs of this man. Jesus has suddenly set the agenda, look at me, to the Pharisees. They don't want to talk about Jesus. They've had him up to here. But he's number one on the agenda, whether they like it or not. And so they need to work out how this is happening and how it happened and what happened. And again here we have a problem. The problem isn't so much their unbelief, it's their theological education principle. They have what I call, or what the educationists call and organisational theorists call, a problem with single-loop learning. That is, whenever they get uh, new data, they just react they never adjust their assumptions. They never question themselves or what they believe about the universe. They just react to the universe. So this fellow, uh, Jesus, um, has done something. We acknowledge that. Why it is, we don't know. But we're not going to visit, revisit and revise our attitude to Jesus. Double loop learning is where everything's on the table, even your assumptions. Where you say... We haven't got an explanation, but maybe that's because of our assumptions. Let's revise our assumptions. And this is something they cannot do. So they ask the fellow for his, his explanation. And he just gives a telegraph version. It's like my son's year 12 English essays. Uh, but <laughs> they, he, just, he, he just pots it down to the very bare bones. And, uh, and then they say, well, what do you make of him? You know, that's out of line. This guy is just to bear witness. If it's a legit course, court, he's just got to bring his experience into the court. It's not his job to evaluate the character. He's not a character witness. He's just a witness. And yet that's what they ask. What do you, what do you say about him? You know, because they're debating, they should be debating the validity of the miracle, but they're talking about Jesus. And he's, he's bona fides as a miracle worker, as a man of God or not. I love his answer. He's sort of basically saying, well, it's using duck logic. Uh, you know, if he, if he walks like a prophet, he smells like a prophet, he talks like a prophet. My guess is he's a prophet. <laughs> and they don't like that. And they think, think well, there's got to be another way out of this. They're getting wedged here. And so they, we should have checked his ID. <laughs> Who knows who he is? Let's get a, a hundred points worth of ID here. And they go and get his parents. They bring them in, and uh, verses 18 to 23. And boy, is that a complete flop. 
Would you like parents like this? And they're wondering whether maybe he's a scammer. Maybe he just looks like the guy who used to beg. But these people could tell us, but they, they just back off and they say, well, he's our son, and yes, he is born blind, and it seems like he can see how, don't ask us, he's of age, and they back off as fast as they can, and they put distance between their own son and the Pharisees. You see, that's the nature of this court. Their job is to intimidate people away from the truth. That's what they want. They want someone to cough up a good solution to this predicament. The parents don't do it. They say, he's his own man. And we see the reason there, John tells us, that's because it was not PC to say anything positive about Jesus. It's a hostile court. It's not an open and just court. And so Jesus uh, is the topic and Jesus can't be talked about. Isn't that crazy? You see how they're working themselves into less and less room to resolve this problem. So they bring the guy back in verse 24. Increasingly they're wedged. And this time they, they set the terms for him. I'll read it. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. I like this. They say, give glory to God. You know, you know, some lovely evangelical phrase like that. And tell the truth. Well, I thought that's what I was doing. We know that this man is a sinner. You see their terms of trade? Tell us the truth, but only tell us what we want to hear. It's a catch-22. It's uh, not what a judge can say or should say. Don't challenge our view, because we're not going to revise the second loop, our assumptions. Now, it's the man, the blind guy. Isn't it amazing we don't know his, his, his name? And he replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. It's not my job to give character references for Jesus. One thing I do know, eyes blind, but now I see. And they say, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And you see their assumption is it must have been a trick. It, it must have been some sort of sorcery. It must have been some sort of sleight of hand. Uh, How did he do it? Some clever, quick Philippine surgery? I don't know. They don't know. What did he do to you? How did he open his eyes? And then the guy pipes up in priceless words. His first response, and I think it was courage born of his personal experience. They couldn't take that away from him. And he basically said, you guys seem to be a little bit obsessed with Jesus. You're always wanting to know his story. You know, it basically is saying in today's language, you impressed me as a bunch of Christophobes. This seems to be something that you can't get away from. I think he might be secretly his disciples. (laughs) Boy, does that press a button or two. And they can't take that one very uh, very well. And uh, (laughs) they respond pretty negatively. Who knows what they said. And basically, their first rebuke is that uh, we are Moses' pedigree. How dare you speak to us like that? A little bit of respect would go a long way, Sonny. And so they, they, these gatekeepers are gatekeepers of the tradition. They have incredible prestige, and no one's going to take them away from them. You see, these people view themselves literally as God's judge on this planet. 
This is the holiest city on the planet. It's the holiest mountain on the planet. It's where God has revealed himself to Moses. And they are the gatekeepers of that tradition. Is there a higher court, I ask you? I rest my case, Your Honour. That's where they're working for. The trouble is, these people have a theological problem as well as an ego problem. They have a view of the Old Testament where they've turned everything into a little law. Casuistry, they call it. There's a rule for every occasion. They don't seem to understand that there's actually a plot in the Old Testament, that it moves from the fall into law, conditional covenant, into the Christ, into grace. They don't have that notion at all. Everything has been settled and they look backwards to Moses where the big things were settled. Sinai was the end of the contract. This is what they're thinking. There is no sense of promise Fulfillment, development, it's only one big covenant. There's not a few theologians around today who still make that mistake. Uh, We come now to his response. And he basically is saying, well, this is a fine thing, isn't it? Let's lay it out again. This is a fine thing. It's not rocket science, is it? Basically, since Adam... Nothing like this has ever been seen on the planet. There has never been a human being. There have been healings, but never has someone without the apparatus to go with vision been made to see. Never happened since Adam. And you're wondering whether this is of God or not, whether this is the Creator's work or not. What does it take? And at that point, they are furious and they press the eject button. How dare you lecture us? You were single loop learning, Santa Claus theology. You were born in sin and you have the audacity to lecture us about God. This is a a difficult moment. And they eject him. Now what that means is not just that he's not allowed back in the MCG for two years. It's not that he can say, oh well, I won't go to church here. I'll, I'll go somewhere else or I'll join a different sect. He has been excommunicated from society. It's very much like what happens to many believers at the point of accepting Christ in Islamic countries today. They become persona non grata. They lose the ability to trade, the right to be represented in court. Life is tough in most of the world for a believer. I shake my head. I I just wonder every day as I read my prayer guide about the Middle East and about Africa and Pakistan, Algeria, why anyone comes to Jesus but they do, knowing they're signing an economic at least death warrant. I can introduce you to people in this city who accepted Christ and they cannot go back home lest their family kill them. That's the nature of of this and this is the sort of thing that this fellow is facing. Not so much 
the charge of apostasy, but he is not to be regarded by any Israelite as an Israelite. Don't trade with him or you'll lose your citizenship. And you can see right at this moment, this fellow, he's got a what a day he's had. I mean, start of the morning at his begging bowl and at least he'd have a, enough money for a lunch. And then he suddenly gets his eyesight. He's never had it. He feels like he's been, you know, blessed by God. But then God's spokespersons have put a big black cross right through him. He can't go back and he can't go forward. Where's he go? What's he do? He can't go back and just say, I'll get myself a white cane and a pair of dark specks and I'll just start begging again. They know him. He is stuck. You've got two groups here who are stuck. On the one hand, the Pharisees have basically discredited him as a witness and they, they think that this is probably a better deal to at least stop people talking about Jesus and not have an answer to their question. Their assumptions prevent them from seeing that answer. And here he is also wedged. And in the midst of this, this seemingly intractable situation, Jesus moves in because he has unfinished business. You notice so often, as we noticed a couple of weeks ago in John 5, there are often two parts to these miracles. There's the dramatic part, but this is just as much a part of the miracle. And Jesus now finds this guy spat out from society, probably head spinning and gutted. Because this man, he's lost his community. That's a psychological shocker. And, and Jesus finds him. And then he asks him a question, just like he did in John 5 to the other guy who was a paralytic. Now he asks this fellow, do you believe in the Son of Man? And it's an interesting question, but you'd sort of say, well, it's a theological question. Um, it's, it's about apocalyptic literature. It's, it's like Jesus is one of those second coming preachers with his chart who comes and talks about the millennium. And, and it's like he comes up to the guy, you know, where do you think we are now with the pointer? You know? <laughs> Here's the Catholic Church. <laughs> and he... As if the guy needs that. and you know, Do you believe in the Son of Man? But it's a critical question because this fellow must have known where that came from. It's not a meaningless phrase. Jesus does not ask him, do you believe in the Messiah? Do you believe there's a God? No, he hones down on a title, which is his favourite title. He uses that of himself more than any other. But that's not why he uses it here. Because this is the title about himself, true, prophesied in the book of Daniel, chapter 7. This is the one who himself is rejected, but in the court of heaven is respected. This is the one that is presented before the Ancient of Days, and the Ancient of Days hands over the whole kingdom of God to his rule. And everyone stands back in heaven and applauds his arrival. What's Jesus saying to this guy? He's saying, 
these people are not the Supreme Court. They have strong and bitter opinions, but they're not the Supreme Court. I am the Son of God. And the verdict that matters is mine. Do you believe in the Son of Man? And this guy says, well, (laughs) I don't walk in those hallowed halls. Jesus says, guess what? And they eyeball each other. You've already seen him. In fact, the one speaking to you, guess what? I am he. Did you notice his response? His response is worship. This fellow does not believe that you should worship angels. He's a Jew. They're monotheists. This fellow does not believe that you should just worship righteous people. That would be blasphemy. You don't worship a prophet, and no prophet worth his salt would take it. You only worship your creator. This fellow by the agency of God and his spirit, recognises who is before him. He had a healing, but now he has a paradigm shift that his creator walks before us. And it was an easy thing to acknowledge. He's experienced his grace. That's the nature of Jesus' business. You see, the essence of Christianity is not Christianity. The essence of Christianity is not a new ideology. The essence of Christianity is not a particular set of political convictions. The essence of Christianity is not discipleship. But disciples are made when they recognise the essence of Christianity is that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. It's the person of Christ is the essence of Christianity. And knowing him is what is the paradigm shift. This man lost his community, but he gained his identity. And I think that's what puts the steel in the spine of those Christians around the world in Somaliland, in Pakistan, in Algeria, that leave behind the ideology of the world and of Islam and communism and what have you and take what's coming because they know that the one who walks in the halls of heaven says that they're okay. They are his. That's what it is to be a Christian. You know, years ago I um, was doing some research. Um, This is a trivial illustration of this point. Um, And I was researching pastors of Baptist-y, Church of Christ-y type pastors. And I was interested in in, in researching pastors who had been, for want of a better word, terminated from their posts. And I sadly was able to easily find a dozen or so to 
interview. And what struck me as I was painstakingly exegeting their transcripts in my office later was the sorts of things that they'd experienced. You see, they had given their life to serve God's church. All of them, all, without exception, experienced at some time in their life a sense of a call from God to that sort of work, this sort of work. But there were two sorts, basically, as, and they're as different as talk chalk and cheese. They all experienced a sense like, they used metaphors like, I feel invisible. I now feel like I've been evaporated. One guy said, and still remember him saying it too, he hadn't told anyone this story in 10 years. They'd all been voted out of their office or they'd jumped just before the axe fell. And when this guy said, you know, what's it like? I said, what's it like? And he said, I, I feel like I'm David fighting an army of Goliaths, except in my story, the Goliaths win. And they had terrible trouble theologically rational reasoning what had happened to them. And, and I noticed something amazing. The, the people who were still paralysed and hadn't moved from that bitter experience, guess what sort of theology they had? Santa Claus. These are people who'd done theological study, but when the crunch came, they operated out of Santa Claus theology. I was a good person. Good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to me, but I think I'm a good person, so what? What's going on here? Terribly confusing. The others had a sense, sort of a sense like this guy that I am blessed, I am good, but bad things have happened to the best. Always. And they had an affinity with the prophets who were thrown into pits. They had an affinity with the Son of Man who condescended to walk on the earth. And those people got well. That was the difference. Your theology really matters. You need to think about how you think, not just to hold convictions. It's critical for us in this age where things, I think, are going to warm up pretty quick if you pay any attention to Parliament. Folks, what we've got to do is homework in advance of the trial. And we've got to resolve something, and I just put it in terms of a question. You've got to resolve this in your own mind's eye, and tonight would be a good time. Maybe this is a guy thing, but I, I think it is universal. You've got to work out, or you won't be able to cope, the difference in your motives for following Jesus. Do you follow him expecting temporary extrinsic significance from the crowd? Or are you satisfied, regardless of the crowd, of lasting intrinsic status? Temporary extrinsic significance 
or lasting, eternal, intrinsic status. If you're satisfied by the latter, you are bulletproof, no matter what the Pharisees can chuck at you. And you will survive it. Amazing story. Here these people, living in the same city at the same time, seeing the same Jesus, come to totally different conclusions and they pass like ships in the night. Some are blind, Jesus says, because they're single loopers. They think the same way. They don't revise their assumptions. They don't check out whether that's really what God is doing in the world. I um, have a favourite saying, and I leave it with you tonight. And it's simply to say, <laughs> this favourite saying has just gone straight out of my head. <laughs> um, <clears throat> no, it's gone. <laughs> you know, you should always write down your favourite sayings. <laughs> this is the lesson for tonight. Um, <clears throat> You are never more than who you are before the all-seeing eye of the all-knowing God. You are never less than who you are before the all-seeing eye of the all-knowing God. Drink that one in. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for the moment just to look at this guy's uh, wonderful testimony. Brand new believer. Such courage. Such loyalty. And such love of the Son of Man. Our Father God, we pray for that sort of courage, that sort of ability to think faithfully in the light of the whole story of what God is doing your gospel. Make us like him, but even better, make us like Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.